I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This week, I'm recording on Halloween morning, actually. Um, so I'm not going out today um, or this evening. I'm staying at home because I want to. So anyway, um, you know, these last couple of episodes, I've been talking about scary films, specifically scary black films. But I think I, I have been rereading um, what's the past week, two weeks off and on um, a book by Stephen King called Dr. Sleep, because I recently became aware that there is a film um, by Michael Flanner. Uh, Flanagan, <laughs> I was about to say Flannery, Michael Flanagan, that's being released. Um, it's actually being released in the UK. I think it was released yesterday um, in the UK, but in the in the uh, US, it's going to be released next Friday. So I'm definitely going to go see it. But in honor of that and Halloween, I'm going to talk about today, Dr. Sleep. Okay, so before I jump into the episode, um, two quick things that I want to just get out of the way. Number one, the Nats won, whatever. Um, And the only reason why I'm a hater and I'm hating on that win, let me just, I am a very fickle sports fan. Fickle to the point where my husband and I, you know, he is a diehard Ravens fan. Not so much a, a baseball fan, but he does support the Orioles. Um... When we watch games together, when we're at home, I have a tendency to be a little pessimistic. You know, I grew up in Kansas City in no shade. Um, The Chiefs did not win any Super Bowls when I was living there, okay? Um, The Royals didn't win any pennants when I was in Kansas City. So, you know, I grew up a little jaded, a little shade. You know what I mean? Like, ugh, you know. So anyway... And, and, you know, I come into my adulthood and I'm over here and I'm like, I look at my bills, you know, my cable bill. And I think, you know what? I'm paying the Ravens salary one way or another. I'm kick, I'm contributing to the Ravens and the Orioles salary one way or another because you're getting it out of my cable bill. You want me to purchase tickets. Um, you want me to purchase merchandise. You want me to get down there somehow to your stadiums. Do you know what I mean? You want me to spend money. Um, And so because you want me to spend money and my energy, I'm expecting some wins. I don't think that is I don't think that's uh, too much to ask. And so when they look like they're not, I get a little um, pessimistic. I tried to pull it back. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to rein it back, Uh, you know, keep some things to myself and, and then say others. Uh, but sometimes it doesn't always work. And so sometimes <laughs> hubby gets so frustrated. He's just like, you know what? I'm gonna go upstairs and I'm gonna watch it on my phone. Um, because I just can't, this energy, I just can't. Cause he's diehard, you know how they are. Anyhow, so, but here's the thing. It's like, I'm pessimistic to local teams, but I definitely don't want rivals to win. And so I was not rooting for the nationals to win. I certainly wanted the Astros to win. I got people there. You know what I mean? I don't really care about the Astros, but you get what I'm saying. I don't really care. I mean, I like baseball. But again, it's that same, you know, what are you, what have you done for me lately? And the O's have not been successful lately. So um, anyway, but nevertheless, you know, 
you got the Beltway series. And of course, in, in the Beltway series, I would very much enjoy the Orioles to win every time they are playing the Nationals. And in fact, I just really, really wanted anybody else but the Nationals to win because of their proximity to Baltimore, but whatever. They won. Congratulations and all that. Anyway, um, but the other thing that I wanted to talk about was um, hubby hit me to this too real early the other day on the passing of John Witherspoon. Pops, as many people know him, um, voice actor on the Boondocks, obviously the father on the Friday franchise, um, was the father on the Jamie Foxx show, was a person in oh Hollywood Shuffle he was like an actor on Hollywood Shuffle if you haven't seen that movie you really ought to Robert Townsend film from the 80s um his commentary on being black and and media and stuff like that anyhow uh or in Hollywood anyhow um I'm sure there are things that I'm missing he's been in several things I think he's had dramatic turns but the ones that I know him in he they were they were all funny so I got Hollywood Shuffle. I got the Friday franchise. I got Jamie Foxx show. Um, uh, Martin. Oh, yeah. Again, Martin. He's a comedian after all, but I definitely know he had some dramatic roles. I just I don't know that I ever saw them. Anyway, he passed away. <clears throat> he passed away the other day at the age of 87, uh, 77. Um, and I, so, like I said, my hubby hit me to his passing. And then I went online to try to find it. And of course, it was all over my social media, um, specifically Twitter. And then I saw, you know how, you know how Twitter um, has these happening lately. Do you know what I mean? Like if, the, if a lot of people are talking about it, it'll create a moment, a Twitter moment. And so there was a Twitter moment where it had John Witherspoon doing something like smiling as he, you know, as he did. Um, excuse me for his photos or whatever or being funny. And so it was like there was the Twitter moment with his picture saying that he had passed. And then it was like the second most, the second most highly rated tweet or whatever came from his son. And at first I thought it was a little odd because I was like, you know how news travels like we get notified when we're supposed to get notified, but the family knows sooner. But it just struck me as odd that the same time I'm finding out that John Witherspoon had passed, I see this tweet from his son said, my, so my so my dad died today. And then he goes into how they used to roast each other and that they were more like friends than father and son and that he's going to really miss him. And then he compared he uh, coupled that message with four pictures of of he and his father from the time he was a toddler growing up and then one of the last pictures they took together and I think they're just sitting at each other smiling and or, or they looked as if they were enjoying some sort of joke um with one another and it looked like it was in the last year or so um and so at first I was a little put off because I'm just like Woof. Uh, it, it just it mm. To me, um, it just seemed it was a little off-putting. But then I thought about it a little bit more, and it's like, you know, his estate released that he had passed. And then his son had tweeted right around the same time uh, that that's a tweet that I just um, referenced. And, you know, I started to think about it, that thing, and I'm like, you know, I imagine... 
it probably wasn't a surprise um, to his immediate family, just like um, uh, Elijah Cummings passing. Um, Congressman Cummings passing was not a surprise to his immediate family and his staffers. Do you know what I mean? Um, and some key legislators, do you know, that it, it, folks knew, but it was well, it was a well-kept um, piece of information. And so it could be that this was something that was coordinated. Um, no pun intended to pops who always used to say coordinate, you get to coordinate anyway. Um, but it could be that this was planned, um, that it was planned for the, for the estate to announce it. And then he announced this. And then the more I, th- I looked at it again, and the more I thought, uh, saw people shared over the day, um, it was, it occurred to me that, that, that was actually pretty tasteful. He was able to express his grief, get, a, get in front of everybody else saying things about his father And it was one of those things where you say it and then you leave it alone because he's going to need a minute because you know how grief works, right? Even if you're prepared for it, you know, it's those beginning stages where she's like, "Ooh, okay, that thing that I was preparing for, that dreadful thing that I was preparing for happened. And now let's go through the business, all the steps that we had planned out and what we got to do. Because one of the things that I learned with my aunt passing in 2016, one of the things that I learned is that you really don't have a lot of time to grieve. If you are the immediate family of someone who's passed on, gone on to glory, you don't have a lot of time in the immediate, uh, in the moment, like in the days and hours after their passing, you don't have a whole lot of time to grieve. You don't have time to grieve, really. What you have time to do is prepare the arrangements and notify. That's, that's what you're doing. And even in the coming months, you are closing out business transactions and things like that. And even if, you know, John Witherspoon, I'm quite sure he had a lawyer, family lawyer and all of that stuff. But still, somebody has got to sign off. Immediate family has to sign things. So his wife, son, even people have to sign things. And it's like it's so it was like my aunt understanding what went on, with, uh, you know, for those of you who may not know my um I don't think I've ever shared this before, but so my aunt um, passed away from uh, cancer um, in 2016. And when she was, when she did hospice care, and I I hate to drag this down, but actually this kind of ties into a little bit, um, ties into greatly um, this topic for today. So let me just get this out. So my, um, when it was apparent that she was not going to, Recover. She was not going to go into remission. The cancer was not going to in, going to go into remission. She went into hospice care, but she did not do it in a facility. She did it in my mama's house, um, which was a shock to me and a shock to my dad. But at the same time, I, as I was thinking it through, a couple of things. Um, so one of the, it was important to my mom. And it was clear that even when my, my aunt was sick, that, you know, my mom was always there for her. She didn't live very far from mom and dad anyway. It was just a drive. You know, you know, you we from the Midwest. You, you drive. You from the country. I don't care where you are, wherever you're listening to the show. If you're not from the U.S., if you are. Um, when you live in the country, you don't mind driving 45 minutes to an hour to get where you need to go or get it, you know, or even if you're in a major city. 
and you're used to public transportation, you know it's going to take you a minute to get places so you, it, you're not studying it. So anyway, she lived about an hour or so from mom and dad's house. Mom and dad lived in the country. She lived on the other side of Kansas City, um, Kansas City, Kansas. Not quite Kansas City, Kansas. I think she was like um, Lenexa. Look it up. Put it on a map. I, uh, or Olathe. It was Olathe. Anyway, um, so it was nothing for mom to just get in the car and just help her. My uh, my aunt was uh, a single woman um, at the end of her life, and for many years. Um, and but then, but definitely at the the last um, what eight years of her life, she was single um, on purpose. She had been married, and it was a terrible marriage, and whatever. Anyway, um, so you know, so when she. When she got sick the second time with cancer, this was her second time, and, then, and it was clear that it wasn't going away, um, easily mom would would care for her. She would go and just, you know, make sure she, that somebody was always with her, and usually that somebody was her. And then when it got clear that she was not going to heal from this, but it was more so about making my aunt comfortable, my mom made the decision with the doctors and my aunt that she would come to the house and spend her last days. And so mom had chosen that route because she shared to me maybe once or twice when my my aunt was getting weaker and sicker and the end was closer. Um, but I really didn't hear it because I was still trying to process the fact that my aunt was dying in my in my childhood bedroom basically um yeah that's that's the real thing about it but it's just a room but nevertheless i was processing the fact that she was not only she's in my home but she was in my childhood bedroom um that's where she was kept because it was close to my mom and dad's room so that mom and dad could easily pop out to just to to check after her, to see about her um should anything happen and so i was processing that and processing the fact that my dad had feelings about it, but he wanted to be supportive of his mom and or of my mama and not be cold and callous, but then also processing his own feelings because he and my aunt were close, like they had grown close um, over the years. So he was processing his feelings in the best way that he knew how. Um, but my in that period, just trying to wrap my brain around and the fact that I'm halfway across the country I couldn't get there as fast enough. I couldn't get there as often as I wanted to. Just tore me up inside because I'm a very family-oriented person um, and very protective too. And that wasn't, it was clear to me that that was something I couldn't protect my mama from, my daddy from, and certainly not my auntie from. So, and that was, I was wrapping my brain around that. But anyway, in a few conversations that I would have with mom over the phone, she said once or twice, you know, um, in those conversations, she said, you know, I basically took care of her when she was born and now I want to take care of her as she goes on to glory. And it didn't really hit me then, but it, it certainly hit me at, you know, the fullness of time when you have some time to grieve yourself, because certainly I needed to do that. Um, because as much as I love my mama and I love my mama, my auntie, this particular auntie, I was very close to. She was my cool aunt. Everybody has a cool aunt. This was my cool aunt. And knowing that I was not going to have my cool aunt anymore, that was a rough one. So so it took me some time to process and then just trying to be as supportive as my mama without telling, without telling her how to grieve. Do you know what I mean? Like 
your sibling who you helped, you feel like you helped raise, you helped, you nursed to death um, in your home, which was both beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time. And, you know, she went through, mama went through a period where she didn't get rid of any of her things, even though it was cluttering up the house. Like she literally had no use for most of the things that came, came from my auntie's house when she had moved into mom and daddy's house. Um, there would be a long time where she kept the room exactly how it was supposed to be, how it was when she left. Like she didn't move anything and all of that. So, you know, she was grieving and it took her some time to grieve through that. And then it took my dad some time to get through that too. And then again, still be sensitive to mama. But anyway, as we were, you know, we're, we're only three years removed right now. It's 2019. Um, you know, talking with mom again and, and wanting to have conversations with her, checking in with her, checking her temperature, basically, just to feel, just to allow her to grieve and process. Cause you know how it is. Some people, I don't know that my dad is equipped to handle a lot of the deeper emotions because I think he was socialized a lot as an older black male that all of these emotions and stuff, that's weakness. You're weak. And he's only now in his later years unlearning a lot of that stuff. And, you know, thank God for the unlearning process of toxic behavior. That it happens at all is a miracle because some people can go their whole life and not unlearn toxic behavior. So I'm proud of my dad for trying to unlearn that. But in doing that, he's trying to be supportive, but not wanting to say the wrong thing sometimes doesn't say anything, which 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 isn't always the best. So I made a point to have conversation with mama. And then she began to say that same thing again, that I nursed. I, I feel like I, I was, I helped. She was with me a lot when I, when she was born, after she was born. And I felt like, you know, we were thick as thieves and close. And I always looked out for her and, and growing up, you know, it, with me being an adult now, I could see all the ways that. No wonder I was so close to my my auntie because my auntie was always within three hours from mama. She was never more than three hours from mama when I was aware. When I was growing up into myself and understanding the world, my auntie was never, never more. I don't even, I think three hours is too much. I think she was never more than an hour and a half away from mama because, oh, something fell, because that's, that was their bond. Um, of course she would travel and stuff, but like she was never, she never lived more than an hour and a half away from mama and daddy anyhow. And so she said that thing again and I was just like, oh, so it was important to you to be there for her as much as it tore your heart out. It was important for you to be there at that last moment, um, because your mother couldn't. And that's how it started to come out that that's why mama thought that she needed to do that. And she she said, if I had to do it over again, as much as that hurt, as painful as that was, I would do it again. I would do it every single time because that's what I knew that that's what how my contribution to her that, that I wanted that to be my final contribution help to her. Yep. And so the amount of strength that that took, first off, my mama's built different, y'all. She just. She just built different. My parents are built a little different. And so just the amount of strength and the strength that it took to make that decision and then go through that. And then the amount of strength that it took to climb out of 
to not get sucked up and enveloped in the sorrow that is left behind from that is pretty, it's a pretty deep thing. And mama, you know, faced it with her eyes open. And so I went off on a tangent, but going back to John Witherspoon's passing and even Elijah Cummings passing, you know, it's oftentimes that the the family, the family, um, let me bring it back. <laughs> so it's oftentimes that the family doesn't get an opportunity to grieve in the moment. So as, my, as crass as I thought that that statement might have been from John Witherspoon's son, it was probably right on time because he probably knew something. Um, and that his grieving process probably will not start for some months now. But I pray that he is able to be helped through the grieving process. Um, because the more you look at that post and the more that you look at the pictures that he chose... I'm sure that, you know, was their relationship perfect? Probably not. But I know that they were, it was clear that they were close. That was what he wanted to convey to the world, that this man that you thought you were close to, I was for real close. This was my daddy. And there's a lot of stuff that I got to do right now. And this was my way to just try to start the grieving process, perhaps. I can't really get into everything right now like I want to, because he probably won't be able to for some months. But when he does, he's going to need that moment. He's going to need that space. He and his mother are going to need that privacy in order to do that. Um, And so anyway, I just, you know, wrap my my spiritual arms around John Witherspoon's family um, as they go through this period. And certainly all the folks that felt connected to John Witherspoon through his work, um, through his comedy, and that they find ways to laugh when they think of him. Um, and his work, which leads me to the today, the topic for today. I know that was a super long intro and it was, woo, that circuit that I just ran around was big, but I, I guess I just needed to get it out anyway. Um, so what I want to talk about today is Stephen King's novel, Dr. Sleep. I think it was like 2008, early odds, the early 2000s, um, book, Dr. Sleep. And the movie, which, like I said at the start, day, it came out, it was released in the UK yesterday, so October 30th, um, but will be released next Friday um, in the United States, which I am definitely going to go see. It's the Michael Flanagan uh, film and by the same name talk, uh, entitled Dr. Sleep. So I'm going to get into it in the next segment. All right, so let's get into it. So, um, so yeah, while I've only seen the trailer for the Michael Flanagan movie, um, Dr. Sleep, um, and I know Ewan McGregor is playing um, Dan Torrance, who was Danny, the little boy, um, Jack and Wendy's son, uh, from the <clears throat> first movie. Um, I don't know much about the other actors, so let me just do a real quick backup for those who don't know. Um Dr. Sleep is the sequel to The Shining. So Stephen King's first early novel, maybe it was in the 70s or so. I don't know when it was written. Anyway, uh, but Dr. Sleep is a sequel to that uh, book that was later adapted into a movie by Stanley Kubrick. And if you know anything about the history of the movie and Stanley Kubrick and and uh, Stephen King. Stephen King famously did not like the adaptation of the movie in spite of everybody 
whoever talks about The Shining, the movie, loving it. Um, but, you know, I, I was listening to a podcast the other day. I think it was um, the last podcast last podcast on the left is these white guys from Minnesota. I think they're originally, I don't know where they're from, but one of them's from Minnesota or something like that. Anyhow. Um, but I think they, they're in entertainment somehow or another. And a couple of, one of them lives in, um, LA. One of them lives in, a couple of them live in New York, uh, New York city and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, but they talk about a lot of dumb stuff sometimes. And sometimes it's hard to listen because they're bros. They act like bros sometimes and they're very white. Um, and sometimes their take on people of color issues, they try to be reverent, but like they just don't have the range sometimes. So I don't often listen to them, but I enjoy listening to different podcasts. And anyway, um, <coughs> they happen to have, they happen to have, um, my phone just went off my bat. Um, they happen to have the, uh, Michael Flanagan on to talk about the movie. And that's the only reason why I heard about it. Cause I was, <coughs> I knew I wanted to talk about, um, Dr. Sleep. But the only reason why I knew that the movie was coming out was because I'd started to see a lot of promotion at the same time. Um, <clears throat> not, I think I read, I started, to, I initially started to reread, um, Dr. Sleep because it was Halloween season. I was going into spooky season. And so I wanted to read it for that. Cause I knew I wanted to talk about it, but it was only after I started to read it that I started to see pop-ups on Twitter about this movie. And then I was looking up podcasts that are, you know, scary stories. You know how I love scary stories, even though I'm a Freddy cat. I love listening to scary stories, all kinds. And, you know, I've pretty well depleted most of my go-tos for scary stories. Um, oh, I can't think of the podcast right now, but um, if I remember what I'm saying, it's the one with Glenn Washington. Um, who is out of California, but he's produced by WNYC, Spooked. I think it's called Spooked. That's his, um, that's his spooky podcast. He has another one, but he has a main podcast. But um, the, the one that's devoted to Halloween season is called Spooked. And so there's a lot of really great stories that are told. Um, there are really great stories that are told on that podcast. And then there are a couple of others around, you know, too. But anyway, so I'd started to run low on all the stories. You know how some podcasts, they recycle stories from last year. And so some of the, some of the podcasts I've been listening to, they've been recycling stories that I heard from last year. So I wasn't into, I really didn't want to reread those. I wanted to, I, I didn't want to re-listen to those. I wanted to listen to new stories. And so anyway, I go, I go, you know, look for last podcast on the left. And lo and behold, one of the episodes that they have is talking about, is talking to the, the director, Michael Flanagan, about um, Dr. Sleep. And so anyway, I listened to the podcast and they, he starts talking about, you know, his approach to this film and Ewan McGregor as the lead, Danny Torrance, his approach to Danny Torrance and all of that stuff. And it was really intriguing. And so, so I'll, I'll just kind of recap what Michael Flanagan already said on that particular podcast and probably in a lot of his um, interviews at this point, and then I'll kind of go into the book without spoilers um, because I want y'all to see this film and I want y'all to read the book if you can because it's really great. I, I I understand why um, Stephen King probably hated the book, the movie, and it was because Stanley Kubrick had direct control and he didn't have a whole lot of say in this movie, and certainly. Uh, Stephen King didn't have any direction or control over Dr. Sleep, but I hope that his approach 
to his works being adapted is different now um, because that film was awesome. And like, again, I didn't read the book, but I have read this one and I'm hoping that the movie does uh, the book justice because you know how you read a well-written book and your imagination runs wild? The most daunting task that a movie adaptation of that book has is to match what your imagination, at least get close to what your imagination can come up with, with creative writing. Um, and so, yeah, this movie, has a, it's a tall order, but in Ewan McGregor, I think they got a good, I think they got a good thing going. So let me just give you the backstory. So we are 40 years removed, 40, 30 years removed from um, the events at the Overlook when Danny was a kid. Um, and you know how The Shining ends. The Shining ends with um, Jack uh, Jack Torrance, his dad, uh, freezing to death, basically. Um, and that he and his mother escaped. And so Danny is older, but he's recounting, you know, what his life was like following The Overlook. He and his mom's escape from The Overlook, um, and you know, his, you know, he, he's just trying to make it. Um, and you know, and in making it, he finds some solace and then in finding solace, he also gets wrapped up into, you know, some of the events from the, that led to the overlook. Some of the things that happened in the overlook begin to happen in his, his life. Now only the stakes are much higher and he's older and he has been down this road before and he kind of knows he kind of knows what he's up against, but there's a, there's a different turn on it. So again, I won't necessarily go into all the details, but I'll just say that the book, it, the main characters are in the book are, of course, uh, Danny Torrance, um, who's played by Ewan McGregor in the movie, Rose the Hat. Now, I'm going to just go over some of these other actors. I have no idea who these people are, but I'm just going through the main characters. So Danny Torrance is the main character. The book is about him. Um... You can't argue. The book is about him. If if The Shining was about Jack and his descent, uh, this book is about Danny and dealing with the aftermath of what happened at the Overlook. So anyway, so it starts. It's <clears throat> the book. It's, well, just, let me just do the book. So Danny Torrance, um, Rose the Hat, who is the ringleader of this group called the True Knot, who have some powers, and because of those powers. Excuse me. They have lived a long and adventurous life. And in order to maintain their long and adventurous life and their wealthy lifestyle as a result of all the things that they've done, they're pretty wealthy um, and they're pretty powerful. They do some things, some pretty dark things in order to keep to maintain that power and influence. Um, so, you, so Danny Torrance rose the hat. Abra Stone, who was a little girl that Danny connects with early, but he doesn't realize that they're connected. And certainly she doesn't either. Um, but she's a key figure in this thing um, as she grows older in this book. This book spans, it starts like 30 or 40 years after The Overlook, and then it continues to go for another 10, 15 years, maybe even, yeah, 10 to 15 years after we pick up where uh, we pick up with Danny. So you get to see Abra grow um, a little bit. So uh, Dick Halloran, who from the original, from The Shining, Dick Halloran was the cook from The Overlook who had a connection with Danny Torrance um, and Wendy, right? De, uh, Dick Halloran helped Danny. And Dick Halloran plays a role in, again, because we're picking up with um, Danny Torrance when he's an adult, 
um, he fills us in on what happened after he and his mama left the Overlook. And Dick Halloran was very helpful in helping Danny to grow and overcome some of the trauma that he faced um, at the Overlook. Um, so Dick Halloran, uh, Crow Daddy, who is essentially Rose the Hat's um, number two um, in the, the True Knot, and Dr. John, who is the doctor, literal, the family doctor for Abra Stone. Um, then there is um, Lucy Stone and Dave Stone. Lucy Stone is Abra's mom and Dave Stone is Abra's dad. Um, and then there's Billy Freeman. There are a lot of other characters, but Billy Freeman is important because I'm going to share something in a second. Uh, so... Long story short, Billy Freeman is very close, grows very close to Danny Torrance for a number of different reasons, um, which will one particular reason, which will become apparent later. um, Definitely when you watch the film, certainly when you watch when you read the book um, or listen to the book on Audible, um, those reasons will become apparent why they're connected. But just know that they are very closely connected in this whole book. Um, And Billy Torrance or Billy Freeman plays a role. But let me just back up and say, so what we know is that that in The Shining, what we know that what we know was that in The Shining, um, one of the reasons why Wendy, Jack and Danny moved to Colorado away from the East Coast was because he wanted to write a book, right? Um, He wanted to get away from the East Coast. There was some trouble in the East Coast and he wanted to get away. Um, and write his book. And of course we know that he, uh, that Jack never actually got to write that book and that he went mad, um, with the spirits that were in the overlook and died, turned on his family and died as a result. Right. So the Michael Flanagan did a really good in that interview that I was listening to. I told you about, um, the folks from the last podcast in that interview, uh, Michael Flanagan did a really good job of summarizing essentially what the book was about as it relates to the writer. And it's apparent that a lot of Stephen King's works are based on his best, fe- his greatest fears. Um, if y'all remember Pet Cemetery, everybody knows Pet Cemetery, one of uh, Stephen King's uh, scary novels that was adapted into a, a film franchise, even updated here recently, was. Um, it started, I guess he got the genesis of the idea because he, his child was almost hit by a car out in front of their house. And I guess the way Stephen King's minds work is that he went into the deepest, darkest fears of what would happen had his child died, which, woo, but I guess that's his way of kind of healing and getting it out so that he can overcome that fear. And so anyway, what we know is that Stephen King as a writer, he talks he takes his biggest fears in life and turns them into scary novels and then somebody adapts them into hopefully really great movies so in this case what we know about um what we know about Stephen King is that he had a moment where he had a problem with alcoholism and that in his troubles with alcohol and and becoming a, a dependent on alcoholism 
he had a moment, he had some pretty low moments. And in one of those low moments, after actually, after coming out of one of those low moments, I guess he just took a look over his life and thought about the worst that could happen um, had he allowed alcoholism to take him over and him not uh, work for sobriety every day. And so essentially what uh, Michael Flanagan said was that, you know, and I'm sure this has been repeated several times. People have done studies over Stephen King's books, but everybody knows that Stephen King has been um, in uh, recovery from alcoholism for decades now. And so the movie The Shining, the book The Shining, is essentially him grappling with what could have happened should he have succumbed to alcoholism. What we know is that Jack Torrance was an alcoholic um, and that contributed to his descent into madness in that isolated, snow-covered ski resort. Um, Of course, the ghost and their power and all that stuff helped too. But anyway, so that was essentially him, Stephen King, kind of processing what his life would be like and how his life, how his family's life would be different and changed um, had he allowed himself to succumb to alcoholism um, or the pressures of the, the pull of alcoholism. Um, and so Michael Flanagan, now let me look up his name again, because I keep feeling like I'm saying the wrong thing. And let me, no, it's Michael Flanagan. I don't know why I keep saying Michael Flanagan. I want to say Michael Flannery, but it's actually Michael Flanagan. Anyway, so Michael Flanagan said, so while the subject of this film, this, this book and the film is about Danny Torrance, what we know, and this is not a spoiler, so what we know is that Danny Torrance, because of the trauma that he endured as a child at the Overlook, and certainly at the hands of his father too, even before the Overlook, um, I said that uh, Dick Halloran helped him overcome a lot of the stuff that he was dealing with, and 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 Dick Halloran helped him overcome helped him helped guide him in small ways and big ways to help hone the shining or at least overcome some of the negative aspects of the shining but he couldn't help him overcome the trauma that he endured at the hands of his father and certainly what happened at the overlook and so what do we do what happens sometimes when we are haunted by the trauma that we've endured over our life sometimes we self-medicate Sometimes we do harmful things to ourselves and that can include self-medication. And so what we know is in this film, and this is not a spoiler, but Danny Torrance is struggling with alcoholism. Much like, um, again, the first film talked about, the first film and book talked about um, Stephen King's own struggles with alcoholism. And so what we see now is an older, we see an adult Danny Torrance haunted by the memories of the trauma that he endured in his life and then also because he found alcoholism young now dealing with the fact that he's also an addict he's also an alcohol an alcoholic and there's this one tiny spoiler he goes into sobriety and that sobriety is certainly a huge theme of this book it's certainly not the theme but it's certainly him overcoming that trauma and finding healthy coping mechanisms so that he can be helpful to as Abra. That is a huge theme himself, but more so to Abra, who is in a lot of ways much stronger and better equipped to handle some of the things that she's encountered. Um, 
again, the shining uh, is different in everyone. What you know is that the shining is different in everyone and that Abra has the shining. Um, and the, but the way they connect is so genius, how they connect, how, how Stephen King writes them being connected or connecting and the support that Abra gets from her family is much different than the support that he did or did not get from his family. Even though Wendy Torrance was super helpful to Danny as he was growing, it's just a little bit different, but nevertheless, you've got a scared family who just doesn't know what the heck to do. Um, and they want to protect their little girl, but they realize there's not a hell of a lot that they can do to protect her. And so Danny is there, stands in the gap to do that. Um, and yeah, so there's a big bad. The big bad in the film is the film in the book is uh, Rose the Hat. Um, and yeah, the the protagonist really, even though this, so it's like the book, the protagonist really, really is Abra. So the fight is really between Abra and Rose the Hat. But it's a story about Danny Torrance. Danny Torrance is still the central figure, but the way that Stephen King wrote it, it's like, he wrote it beautifully. He made more than one person be a, be a focus. Even though it's a, Danny, Danny is the through line and he's very much important to the story, he's a player in the bigger grand scheme of things, which again, I'm quite sure that's hard to do as a writer. But anyway, um, yeah, like I said, there's tons of other people that are in this film. Certainly there are many people in the true knot that are following Rose um, that are important. Like I said, Crow Daddy is her number two. Um, Snake, Bat Snake Bite Annie is someone who is kind of important, but only, be only important enough for you to understand how the true knot grows its membership. But outside of that, she's just a, uh, someone else. She's just a figure in the book. Um... And yeah, and so, and so actually, I take it back. Um, I take what I said back. It's about Danny, but it's about Danny and Abra. And the, but the big bad is still Rose, Rose the hat and the, the big good is still Abra. Um, but Danny helps Abra get to that place because she's a kid. She's, she, it starts when she's a baby and then this book ends when she's a teenager. And so that growth is important and Danny is a part of it. Um, anyway, what, I, like I said before, I saw the trailer. That's all I've ever seen is the trailer. And from what I know, I'm hoping Ewan McGregor is going to be a really good choice because from what Michael Flanagan said about um, what Ewan said to him in the very beginning, when they were first talking, up, he was, I guess, first auditioning about the, for the role of Danny Torrance, he said, well, I'm not going to try to affect any of Jack Nicholson's, Nicholas's, I'm not going to try to be Jack Nicholson as Danny Torrance. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to try to act like Jack Nicholson as Jack, his Jack, Jack Torrance. I'm not going to do any of that. What I'm going to do is focus on the fact that Danny Torrance is an alcoholic and he's trying to get his life together. And that's how I'm going to play this thing. And he's trying to deal with, with what he's been through. And while he's trying to help someone else who's going through something similar and with and living with the shining, too. Um, and so I was like, oh, that's a really great take, because you could really as an actor, you could really do take with this story. You could really do just about anything. I mean, there are certain things that are laid out in the film, like, like in the book. He's got to be someone who's got a troubled past and he's an alcoholic. So with that, there's so many, and he has, he, he has this thing 
that is supernatural called The Shining. And he's, yeah. So um, there's a lot of different ways that you could go with that, but as an actor, but hearing Michael Flanagan talk about Ewan McGregor and his approach to Danny Torrance makes me hopeful that it will, he will try not to match who I imagine Danny Torrance to be, but he will do a really good rendition of who I expect Danny Torrance to be in the film. Um, because like I said, Danny Torrance was perfectly well-written. He was perfectly tortured, but human and real and I want real behavior. I want, I want authentic, I, I want authentic behavior. You know, you don't have to be an alcoholic to understand that it can be hard to pull yourself away from it. Um, you don't have to have experienced adverse, like hugely traumatic situations in order to understand how trauma can impact a kid into adulthood. Untreated trauma can impact a kid into adulthood. Um, yeah, but I, the way Michael Flanagan talks about Ewan and his approach to Danny Torrance, I hope that it's going to be pretty great. I'm, I'm expectant that it's going to be pretty great. Also, if I can just take a step to the side for just a second. Stephen King is a white author. He writes really great films, but his, he's a white author and he's a white male author, so... What we know is that a lot of times authors write things from their perspective and what they see in the world. And so the one thing that annoyed me about The Shining, the movie, was that there was one black person in the film for real. And it was Dick Halloran. And he was a cook. Like one of the most, the, a trope, essentially. And it was also like a shaman of sorts. Do you know what I mean? He had to be the old wise sage guy. The only black person in the whole film is he's got to do everything right he's got to be magic he's got to be a healer he's got to be strong he's got to be a cook a servant too um and i hated that and i understand that probably in the book he was more thought out and certainly in this reading of um dr sleep he is a more fully realized human being and there's certainly more you you learn more about him and his family but i just really hope the other thing is that in this film from the trailer, we know that Abra is a little black girl and we know her father is black and we know that, of course, her mother has to be white. Right. Um, uh, in this film, she doesn't have to be white. She really doesn't have to be white. Um, and you'll come to understand why she doesn't have to be white. But it's not like Stephen King wrote these folks to be white. But what we know is that Danny Torrance himself is white. We know that Jack Torrance was white. We know that Wendy Torrance is white. But outside of that, and Dick Halloran was black, but outside of that, all the people in the show don't have to be white. Yet here we are with a white mom. <clears throat> There's a number of different ways we could have got there. And then we know that by and large, when people think black, they think black men. They don't think black women because black women are throwaways, right? But they put a little black girl in there. So, and there's passing her off as biracial, but she's brown skinned. So I appreciate that. Um, so, you know, I, I hope I'm glad to see a little black actress get her start there. I think that's great. I just wish there were more people of color in there, even though Crow Daddy is brown. I think I've seen him in there's an HBO show whose name I cannot remember right now, but it was like about, um, robots, essentially robots, um, coming into their humanness. 
um, or at least realizing that they have their own ability to be and exist outside of their purpose, the purpose for for their creation. Anyhow, um, so he was in there and he was playing um, a Native American man. And so I think the guy that plays um, Crow Daddy uh, Zon McLaren, I don't know his name, Zon something. Anyway, um, he, I think he's native. Uh, so that's cool. And then Billy Freeman is played by a South Asian man who's been in a ton of stuff. So I think that's pretty great. Hold on. Let me see if I can, let me see if I can pull it up. Um, okay. In the film. So Ewan McGregor plays Danny. Um, Rebecca Ferguson, who I, I don't know who the heck that is, plays Rose the Hat. Kylie Curran is Abra Stone, so that's the little black girl's getting her debut. Carl Lumby, and I don't know who he is, but anyway, he's playing Dick Halloran. And I thought his accent was a little funny in the in the um in the trailer, so I'm hoping that it, it sounds different when I watch the movie. Um I'm gonna skip over some people. Bruce Greenwood as Dr. John, which I heard him speak a little bit in the trailer, and I think that's right on from the voice that I heard in my head. Um, uh, so, uh, Shelley Duvall is not playing Wendy Torrance in this movie, obviously. So the, in this movie, they have, um, Alex Esso, who's playing Wendy Torrance. Um, and Jack is played by, um, Henry Thomas, because obviously they're not pulling Jack Nicholson. Um, uh, who in the world is playing Billy? Billy Freeman. Sorry, hold on. I'm trying to pull. So Zahn McLarnon is Crow Daddy. Um, and like I said, I think he's he's Native American. He's um, indigenous. I think he's indigenous. Um, like I said, Carl Lumby. Who is? Come on. Shoot. Who's Billy? Fr- oh, Cliff Curtis. Cliff Curtis is Billy Freeman. And Cliff Car- Curtis is played in... He's from New Zealand, but he's played in a ton of stuff. Um, he's usually the bad guy. I, I remember him playing a bad guy, but I think the most recent thing he's played in is uh, Fear of the Walking Dead, which I haven't really watched much. But if you've watched that, then he's a character on that show. Anyway, um, but I love the fact that Billy Freeman is a brown man. I think that's pretty cool. They always put brown people as villains. I don't really give a crap about all the people of color that they have villains is because they love putting brown people as villains. But I do love the fact that Billy Freeman, who is essentially, essentially Danny Torrance's compass, which again, there you go again, having brown people being magic and and being a, a white person's crutch or their doctor. But at the same time, I really appreciate Billy Freeman's character. I think Billy Freeman's character is sweet and very important in the grand scheme of things of this story. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, so there's people of color, but again, when they think people of color, they tend to go male instead of woman, specifically black women. When it comes to black, they don't... They, Typically, Hollywood doesn't think black woman. They think when they think black, they think man and they will find the chocolatiest of chocolate black man. But when they want to put a take, put a black woman in, they often uh, choose a fair skin uh, or a lighter skin black woman. And so it is refreshing to see this little black girl being brown. I appreciate that. Um, and that her father is black because but again, of course, they love putting brown dark brown men in movies but they don't really put black women 
in movies like that and if they do their lighter skin so little girl's brown abra's brown of course her mama's white because that's how they thought that they needed to get to that storyline and you will understand what i'm talking about when you watch the film or read the book um actually when you watch the film you'll understand what i'm talking about but there are a million and one ways to connect this story and you could totally still put a black woman in there and you could still make that thing connect but anyway um yeah i think i can't tell you much more because i'm going to start spoiling on accident the movie the book is really good and i'm expecting the movie to be good too um it's going to be scary Oh, it's going to be scary and it's going to, there's some subject matter in there. I'm going to just be truthful with you. I don't know how deep the movie's going to get into it because the book gets into it. But what you need to understand is that there's child abuse in this film or in the movie for sure. I don't know about the, uh, the, how far, like I said, I don't know how far they're going to get in the movie, but there's definitely child abuse, um, in the book, a lot of child abuse, but not in the, not always in the way that you think. Um, But children are definitely not always protected in this book. Um, Abra is protected, but that's for a specific reason. Danny was not, but but most of the children in the book are not protected. Danny did get some protection when he was in the the Overlook, but the only one that was really protecting him was was, um, Dick Halloran, not anyone else. uh, Dick Halloran and Wendy Torrance, those were the only two people that were protecting him. Abra has much more protection um, than Danny Torrance did when he was a child. But by and large, a common theme in this book is that children are not protected. Um, but there's a reason why they're not protected. They're, yeah, I, I can't go further than that because I'm interested to see how the book will go into, or the movie will go into it. But the book is pretty, um, oof, it's pretty rough. It's pretty rough to talk about. Um, and, and read. So I'm wondering how they're going to, in this day and age, I I wonder how they're going to approach it. But anyway, you really need to, if the book isn't your thing, watch, I do encourage you to watch, to read the book. Um, if you watch the movie first, go back and read the book. Um, cause I think it's going to be helpful cause that book, man, I must've read this at this point. I've read or listened to um, Dr. Sleep at least four times at this point. Um, and it, I keep finding things that I missed the, the last time. You know what I mean? You know how that is where you read a thing, then you read it again and you pick up something you missed. I keep finding things. It keeps, I keep finding new reasons to really love the story. And so I'm hoping that the movie, it's a tall order, man. And so far I, I like some of the casting choices like Billy Freeman and Danny Torrance. I like those casting choices. I like the fact that Abra's in there as a little black girl. I'm hoping as uh, Abra's a pr- powerful little girl. So I'm hoping that this little actress can um, convey that power. And I'm sure she can because there's a lot of teen angst and stuff in there. Um, and I am looking forward to, I really hope, really, really hope that uh, Dick Halloran is as good a character in the movie as he was in the book for me. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, there are some effects that I, I wonder how they're going to make happen, but CGI makes a lot of things possible these days, but I hope they don't overdo it. Anyway, I'm going to start telling you too much about the book. So that's it. 
Okay, so yeah, watch the film and yeah, go to my page and interact with me. Leave me a message. I want to hear what you think about the movie when you watch it, after you watch it. And if you've read the book, I want to hear your thoughts about it too. Um, when you go to, when you click the link on my, um, in the episode description, you can go right to my page and you can click a little button. You don't have to download anything in the world. You can click a little button and record me a message. It'll come straight to me. Um, and after you've left your message and you're there, you can donate too if you feel like it. Even 99 cents will be a helpful contribution. But again, as I always say, if donating money isn't your thing on a regular basis or even a one-time basis, just share this episode with somebody you think likes Stephen King or likes Stephen King books or, or you think might enjoy this episode. And I've been looking through, you know, the little analytics of my, this little experiment that I, you know, my little podcast. And what I know is that a lot of y'all are listening to um, some of my older episodes. So some of y'all like Watch Out for the Big Girl. Some of y'all really like um, the one I did about Fleabag. Um, some of y'all like the one about uh, Juneteenth. Some of you are even going back and listening to the Black American folklore uh, stories. Um, Black American folklore, uh, scary stories my daddy told me. Some of y'all are listening to that right now. I encourage y'all to go back and do that. Um, yeah, so yeah, some, clearly some of these episodes really resonate with you guys more than others. And I appreciate that um, because it gives me a sense of, you know how you in your mind you think you think you know what people might be interested in and then when you get some data behind your you know you get some data on your side you recognize oh so that thing I was too scared to talk more about people actually love that so I think I'm going to spend some more time I'm going to devote more of my episodes more of my energy to talking about spirituality and history but not in a boring way um and certainly pop culture and media of course um but yeah, and, and of course, new shows, especially the, the kooky ones that everybody is interested in. I'm definitely going to keep talking about those. Um, but yeah, so sharing these episodes does more than you know. Um, sharing these episodes with your friends, family and coworkers, and even people you don't like um, is helpful to this show. And it helps, like I say, it helps expand the reach of this show. Um, what I know is that folks from the UK, the Netherlands, France... Um, Mexico, of course, the United States, of course. Um, but yeah, the far reaching places across the globe, folks are listening to this. And so if you can help me get it to places like South Africa and Australia and uh, China and so on and so forth, I think that would be kind of cool. Um, yeah. So thanks again for listening. Be sure to favorite me or like like me. Give me uh, four stars, five stars favorable ratings on all of the, the platforms. So CastBox, Pocket Cast, Spotify, Google, uh, I was about to say Amazon, <laughs> um, Apple, um, Player FM, all the places, all the places that you can listen, just rate me positively if you can, because that's going to help too. All right. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you celebrate, happy Halloween. If you're going to go out tonight, be safe. Um, and if you're listening to this on any other day, have a great day. All right. Until next time.